0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources, and I'm joined today by Sam Quinones, author of the best-selling book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. So thank you for joining us and welcome, Sam.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Greg. Good to be here.
1: Yeah. So first question, how did you decide on the name Dreamland for your book?
2: Well, it was not the original title. I, I, uh, I, this is the beauty of, um, of, of reporting. Uh, you kind of follow the story and follow the information. And, and I, I heard about this pool in uh, the town of Portsmouth, Ohio about midway through my research. I'd gone to Portsmouth um, because I wanted to tell the story of pill mills. Uh, pill mills were a very important part of this story about the spread of these uh, opiate painkillers. They were essentially pain clinics in which the, the doctor really had stopped doing any diagnosis and it was just a, a sham, a front for, for massive prescribing for cash. And, and Portsmouth was where that business model really took hold first and spread from. And so I went there thinking I would do a story. A couple of days in Portsmouth would be enough. And what ended up happening was I began to focus really a whole lot on that town because it was a town that was very much like a lot of others where this problem had started. And and um, I began to hear about this gorgeous, beautiful Football field size swimming pool that held the town together for m- many years when it was a really a thriving community with lots of jobs and a bustling main street. Well, one of the things about the town that was beautiful was it had this gorgeous, enormous swimming pool where it, it used, acted as a babysitter. It was very, they had like class distinctions basically faded because everybody looked the same in, a, in swimming trunks. And life itself kind of took place there. You grew up. At this pool, and the name of the pool was Dreamland. Uh, the reason I, I called the book that was because it, it was almost a stand in for the communities that we have destroyed or the community feel that we have destroyed in so many parts of the country. Uh, once the jobs left that, that town, the main street emptied out, half the population left, uh, the pool itself was was no longer, could no longer, I guess, be supported, and they destroyed it and they dug it up. And uh, they put in a strip mall. Basically, there's an O'Reilly's Auto Parts there now and a big, big sea of asphalt. And um, it seemed to me a crucial moment, though, in this story, because it's with that that the town loses almost its what you might call a societal immune system that might keep problems at bay when you have a place where everyone knows each other and sees each other outside and, and gets along better or worse, they kind of get along, and it's kind of a babysitter for a lot of people, all in a very communal aspect. Once everybody is t- that's taken away, everybody retreats indoors, isolated, fearful, afraid of the outside, that's when a problem like opiate addiction really takes hold. And that is the story of many, many parts of America. So I really named the book that because Dreamland in Portsmouth, Ohio, really is the story of many parts of America, it seemed to me.
1: Yeah, sure. That, and that really works. So Dreamland provides amazing insight into how a series of events conspired to create the opioid epidemic. So let's talk about some of those events and why they were so important. First of all, Dr. Jick's letter. Can you speak to right. that?
2: That was one of the more bizarre stories of this book. I don't I don't write about health and medicine coverage too much. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I'm really more about gangs and inter- immigration and drug trafficking and that kind of thing is what brought me to this book. And I just assume that, that medical... Practice and medical prescribing would be based on science and and in this case. It really was not um in 1980 uh, A doctor by the name of Herschel Jick runs a is still alive runs a, um, a, a Hospital database of patient patient records um, in, in those years about 300,000 patient records it, He got used to asking questions of the data about how certain drugs were used And know one day he told me in an interview said, I just got the idea. Let's ask how many patients were treated with narcotic painkillers while in hospital and how many of those eventually got addicted. So he finds that the data shows that 11,000 plus people were treated with opiate painkillers while narcotic painkillers while in in hospital and four of them got addicted. So he writes up a letter uh, to the editor for the New England Journal of Medicine, 101 words uh, saying this, laying this out, it's an FYI kind of letter. It's not a study, it's not a report, it's no scientific basis for it. It's just, this is what I found, by the way. It's just a simple letter. And they publish it in 1980, January 1980. They publish it, New England Journal of Medicine, in uh, under the heading, Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics, as if to say, uh, you know, patients don't get addicted when treated with uh, opiate painkillers. And it was forgotten, and he intended nothing of this. He just said, I just wrote this up, um, all the things that I've done, that ranks very near the bottom in terms of importance, and I forgot about it. Uh, but it was picked up by a whole cadre of pain professionals, pain specialists, uh, many years later, about 10 years later or so. They began to pick the, up on this because they were promoting the idea. They were young doctors believing that America did not treat pain properly and really wanting to revolutionize the way pain uh, treatment what happened in this country. They began to say uh, this is uh, an important piece of evidence and they began to quote it and cite it and it really provided, what that letter did was it uh, um, cited, became cited and, and and quoted over and over and over again uh, without anybody really knowing what it was. Uh, it became kind of like an emperor's new clothes. Nobody really could stand up and say, well this is just a letter, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, people began to quote that and cite it; became kind of gospel, and it was really the intellectual cornerstone for the pain revolution as we have seen it in in the United States. And this is a revolution in how opiate painkillers have been used uh, are used in the in the last twenty years, which goes from almost none at all to way, way the, the pendulum swung way to the extreme, and now we use them for all manner of 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 pain, and 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 we use lots of it too, not just a little bit. We use, uh, you know, every every pain every patient who comes out of uh, a routine minor surgery gets uh, thirty to sixty days of uh, of, um, of opiate painkiller, Vicodin or Oxycontin. But and that, so that was in, in very important to the to the story I was trying to tell. This change and I, when I got into it, I began to realize this is one little letter was fundamental in changing the minds because it was what quoted so many times. If you look on. Google Scholar and you look up Porter and Jick, which is the name of this letter, you will see that uh, it's been quoted or cited in in, in academic, medical academic journals and, and, and reports something on the order of 900 times. It was a little letter. It means nothing. The wow. guy himself said, I didn't intend any of this. Yeah. Other people took my letter and ran with it. And salespeople. it an amazing uh, episode in yeah. all
1: this. Yeah. And the pharmaceutical salespeople ended up quoting it, didn't they?
2: Yeah. In fact, particularly Purdue Pharma, when it began to promote OxyContin, began to say, look, we now know that these kinds of drugs are are virtually non-addictive. Less than 1% of all people who use these drugs get addicted. And this helped convince lots of doctors that all of a sudden this was a new day in science. And we now knew something we didn't know before. Not true. Terribly, horribly not true, and there was no evidence for the idea that less than 1% of all people, uh, pain patients who were treated with with these painkillers, get addicted. That was nonsense, Uh, but the the company ran with it, and it helped sell their their product, and the only place in medical literature that you'll find that claim is in this one little little letter published in 1980.
1: Hmm. So that led to pain as the fifth vital sign.
2: And it also led to, right, it led to a whole bunch of other ideas too that gained credence. That, that we were a country in pain, we were not treating it properly, and we had the tools that we were not, we were not using them because we were afraid that they would create addiction, when in fact we know they now, now know they don't. That means also that there's no limit on dose. So people could be given lots and lots and lots of these pills, and it would not create any real undue risk of addiction. And so there's no, and so people began to get, as I said, 30, 60 days worth of, 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 uh, of Vicodin or OxyContin after every minor, minor surgery. It really was the beginnings. This was all in the mid-90s, late-90s. Uh, this transformation of thinking, a new conventional wisdom set in and was taught in, in uh, medical schools. Lawyers at hospitals told, told doctors, if you don't treat aggressively treat the pain, you can be sued. Uh, There was all these pressures on docs. At the same time, you're getting this marketing. uh, There's a lot of pressures on docs to tell them, you better do this. You have to do this. Uh, A lot of docs didn't want to go along with it, but I think a lot of them just had to because that was the, the order of the day. And a new conventional wisdom was created that said that we could use these pills for almost any kind of pain on almost any kind of person, and we didn't run any risk of addiction. It was pure nonsense, and it led to the problems we have today.
1: And at the same time, in 1996 you had or, yeah 1996 you had the introduction of oxycontin how important was that
2: no that was a game changer for a couple of reasons first oxycontin was promoted like to doctors to convince doctors it was the, that's where they used this 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 claim that less than 1% of all people who use these drugs get get addicted um, to convince doctors to to begin prescribing this stuff and go against the medical school education that they, that had taught them that no anything derived from an opiate from the opium poppy is going to be pretty addictive. You've got to be careful. Um, it, they, they wanted to, to, to kind of like overwhelm that education, and, and they did so. Um, and and uh, uh, Oxycontin also created the enormous amounts of, 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 um, of tolerance. So that before Oxycontin, you didn't have people using two, three, four hundred uh, uh, milligrams of, of these drugs a day. It just was very difficult because most of the pills that existed before that were also combined with acetaminophen or with tylenol, and you would destroy your internal organs before you got to that uh, le- that level. But OxyContin had none of those use deterrents in it, and so people developed these very strong, very high tolerances and, and were very very uh, dangerous, prone to, to overdose, and, and also uh, very difficult to kick.
1: So chemically speaking, what's the difference between legally prescribed OxyContin and heroin?
2: Well, you know, not a whole lot. They're all. uh, Oxycontin really is not a drug. It's a pill that contains a drug called oxycodone. Uh, But they all are, all these drugs, hydrocodone, oxycodone, there's a few others, uh, and, and heroin. Are all derived from the opium poppy so they're molecularly they all are similar they all have similar effects on the brain chemistry they all create the same euphoria um, they all create they all kill pain very well they all create addiction they can very easily create addiction and they also uh, create a bad withdrawal symptom, symptoms when you try to kick so there really is not a grand difference between among all those all those drugs
1: so after your prescriptions run out, you can no longer find someone to prescribe for you. You're purchasing the pills on the street. Yeah. Economically speaking, the cost on the street and the difference between a pill for oxycotton uh, and uh, heroin. What's the difference?
2: Well, nowadays it's it's very it's great. Uh, there's a large difference. Um, the pills were uh, you know go in most markets of the United States. They go on the street for about well a dollar a milligram, usually. Um, and, and this is where another issue co- co- coincides is very important, and that is that um, for many, many years in the, in the 20th century, a lot of our heroin, particularly on the eastern side of the United States, came from the Far East, came from Burma, Thailand, Turkey, places like that. Though That heroin arrived very diluted, very expensive, and and uh, was not really particularly good heroin. In the 1980s, all that changed. and all that heroin was supplanted from much more potent and much cheaper heroin coming up from Latin America, mainly Mexico or Colombia, those two countries primarily. And, and so that really took over the market. And so that heroin was much, much cheaper and much more potent. And so people developing this very high addiction to uh, a tolerance level, daily level to, 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 um, to OxyContin, were looking around began to look around for some cheap alternative just as potent or more so than what they were using, but cheaper and at least as available, if not more so. And they found it in in cheap Mexican heroin coming up from Mexico or heroin coming from Colombia through, through Mexico. And and so that has really created the problem that we have today. I we would not have a heroin problem in America today were it not for OxyContin. That to me I think is very, very clear. That is the bridge from this lodo, spike it in a percocet to heroin. You don't make that jump on your own. You have Her- OxyContin Oxycontin creates that. That tend- that that high tolerance that makes you look for some uh cheaper substitute. We I don't think we would have A heroin problem, or at least we would not have the heroin problem to the intensity we have it today, were it not for the cheap heroin that's now coming from Mexico or, to some degree, uh, from Colombia up through Mexico.
1: You know, there's something though that I still just can't get my head around. You know, back, you know, when I was growing up, there were definite social barriers associated with heroin for anybody in my generation, but there are no social barriers today for you know people that are say 36 years younger.
2: That's because they all start with the pills. I mean there's there's these statistics from the from the CDC um, Which I think very highly of it's a terrific organization They say something like 80% of all people who start use heroin started on pills My feeling is it's more like probably 95% close to 100% but uh, whatever the case People start with the pills because the pills are everywhere doctors all across America bought into this idea that these pills were non-addictive and could be prescribed in huge amounts without any risk and so these pills are all over and these pills create the same kind of addiction that heroin does and once you're addicted you know you don't have much free will you don't have any rational thought and so The only thing you want is more dope and get me my dope and that's, that's it. And so all that stigma that you and I grew up with, and I, I felt it myself. I never would, I didn't have, I didn't want want friends who used heroin. You know, I didn't want to be around these people. Um, Now that, but that, all that has been broken down in a lot of kids, a lot of people, not just kids, um, Who get first addicted to these pills prescribed by doctors and then at certain certain point it becomes just financial sustainability question You know, can I continue to spend a hundred to two hundred dollars a day? Of course not Mexican heroin is cheaper and it's in some areas. It's more available Um, And so uh, I'm I'm gonna switch to that and it's 40 to 60 bucks instead of 150 to 200, you know Uh, so all of that uh, fades away all that stigma all that fear all that fear of needles that just fades away because the addiction is just so domineering. It's it's the most potent, I call I think of it as really the opiate addiction today is one of the, the most potent threats to personal freedom that we have in America today because you really do not have any free will once you get addicted uh, uh, to it and once you make that, and so then you're looking for something cheaper. That's all you care about is a cheaper way of getting the same the same addiction uh, satisfaction um, Mm -hmm. and and the heroin uh, provides that. Yeah.
1: Now let's talk about the Jalasco Boys and their distribution network. How did they decide where to set up shop, Sam?
2: Well, I think a lot of them, um, because they came up, there's a small town in Mexico, uh, guys coming up, uh, they learn this system of selling heroin very much like pizza delivery. Uh, um, They start out in Southern California mostly they they go where the addicts tell them to go they meet the addicts themselves because they're retailers they're not wholesalers like most mexican drug trafficking drug trafficking groups they're not they're not wholesalers they're retailing it they meet these these addicts face-to-face day in day out sometimes several times a day and it's the addicts who be they befriend them and the addicts will tell them where to go i met many cases of people saying well, if you just go to this town you'll make a million. Well, come with me and help me do this because I don't speak English very well and you you're you're an American addict, you know. And and they began to uh the, the addicts the addicts that took them there, they were kind of like their their guides to America, really. Uh were the addicts who took them to Portland, uh took them to South Carolina, took them to Memphis, took them, you know, took them to um uh, uh Columbus and so on. And um and these were uh, uh addicts who who just simply they got These guys befriended and in time uh, opened up all the markets to to them, and then of course they developed their own uh, system for selling, giving away free samples, did a lot of that, giving away dope in front of methadone clinics. But see, the addicts were the ones who told them about the methadone clinics. The addicts were saying, "Man, all the addicts, all the heroin addicts in our town, in Salt Lake City, for example, they're all one time or another going to be at a methadone clinic. So if you just go there and give away free dope." boom, you'll be you'll be getting customers right and left. But it was really the the, the underground, and this is the way the drug trafficking world works, in my opinion. It's not like some GM board of directors making these very calculated decisions. It's one guy saying, hey, man, check out this town. You would make a killing over there. Okay, fine, I'll do that you know, and boom that's how that's how it's that's how it spreads in my opinion
1: and they also avoided some of the big towns that you would think naturally in cities that you would think naturally they'd that's have a I huge I market thought, there I thought,
2: well, New York when did Chicago. they go to New York yeah because I've always thought I watched those movies in the 1970s, you know French connection, Serpico, New York was the big heroin market, right? yeah well, no, they don't want to go there, why not? because there are gangs there they're entrenched mafias there. There are people with guns we are going to kill them. These are farm boys. These guys don't go to places where there's competition. They want to find no competition. That's that's the capitalist dream. They don't want to be gunslingers and and notorious mobsters. They don't want that. They want to. They want what any small business wants to be able to sell a product without any competition and be able to you know do as uh, uh, do really well that that way. So they avoid New York. They avoid Philadelphia and D.C. and Baltimore, which is kind of where our heroin, East Coast heroin corridor. They invo- avoid Chicago. They go to towns uh, that all look kind of the same on a map though, like Cincinnati, and Minneapolis, Portland, Reno, uh, Albuquerque, Phoenix, Columbus, Charlotte, etc., etc., etc. And uh, all that are more or less easy to get around. They have a, a freeway system that's got a periphery freeway and then one going north and one going north-south, one going east-west. It's not that hard to figure out. And the towns are most of them have a fairly sizable Mexican immigrant population so they can blend in, you know. So, no, they avoid that. – that was one of the interesting things early on, I realized, that they don't go to those places. But if you think of, it, think of it in terms of business, it makes a lot of sense. Why would you go to New York City, try to break into a market where, where people are serious and, and, and have guns and you don't?
1: Sure. And they also developed an interesting business model that you described as a pizza delivery business model. Tell us how that worked.
2: Well, I mean, basically, it, it worked basically on business principles. You know, uh, 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 standing around selling heroin it, it exposes you to cops, to uh, uh, other dealers, uh, or, or robbers, or street street heists, what have you. So they developed early on a, a system of selling heroin like pizza. So uh, an addict, a driver would drive around all day. Uh, he'd have a, a, a you know small amounts, usually a tenth of a gram doses of heroin in, in his mouth. Wrapped in little balloons, they don't inflate. It's just a little balloon covering, and usually you can get 20, 25 balloons in a mouth. You have a big jug of water, so you can swallow all that down in case the cops stop you. Uh, you have uh, an operator standing by who's directing you to wherever you need to go, and you have an addict, and you circulate the, the, the phone number to all the addicts in the methadone clinics and wherever else, or you have an addict helping you, sending, telling you, telling his friends, hey, this is a new place to get your dope. And the addict calls the operator and the, op- take, the operator takes the order and the operator directs the, the driver where to meet the addict. And it's a, it's like pizza delivery. And it works very, very well as a system, particularly, particularly if you have access to large amounts of, um, of cheap labor as this town did, as guys from this town did. They had lots of young guys raising their hands. I'll go to Cincinnati. I don't know where Cincinnati is. I don't speak English. I don't care. I just want to drive around uh, for, for nine months and that will help transform my life from being a, a, a kind of a peon uh, avocado farmer or baker and uh, going nowhere job into somebody that, that has land or somebody that has uh, nice clothes or a truck or that girls want to talk to. And it was an amazing system. It really uh, was almost unbeatable. And, and it also, but it also, it also served you know, the, the interesting thing about it was it, it was a very, um, it, was, it was one that it was very, you know, it looked like any capitalist enterprise. And it behaved the same way. So, whenever, you know, typical, a typical business, when it faces a lot of competition in Southern California, for example, it, go, it looks for new markets. Well, these guys did too. A lot of guys got into the business from the same town. They couldn't kill each other because they don't know each other. They do where each other's mothers live. So what do they do? They they move to other towns, and as soon as word got out that that town was good, pretty soon they had to compete with those, more more guys coming in from out of town, and and, and, and so it, it was intensely expansionary. So and, and that's they all, what sent it all across the, to, to many states in the country.
1: Huh? And in the process, they also emphasized customer service, something right, that's really unheard they all of. They know
2: each other, right? Yeah, they, they can't shoot each other
1: yeah, but I mean, they emphasize customer service, follow up with their customers. and that's
2: because they the only way you're going to take a customer from one of your friends who is in another crew is by doing better service. that's it, I mean, it's in, entirely keeping with in keeping with basic capitalist uh, free market uh, business uh, principles, entirely that way.
1: yeah you end dreamland by uh, focusing on the resurrection of Portsmouth and how the community made that happen. My takeaway from that was we as a country can succeed when enough communities say enough is enough and take action to make a difference fighting the opioid epidemic in their own backyard. What are your comments on that? No,
2: I, b- I, believe that's, I believe that's true. This is a drug that has thrived on isolation. And we are extraordinarily isolated people now, it seems to me, um, in wealth or in poverty. A lot of, you know... Uh, we 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 have um, we don't go outside. The kids don't play outside. Uh, we have these uh, very superficial connect- connections with social media and the internet and cell phones. But really, we don't. You, we all know that that's not a real human connection at all. Uh, we, that's that's obvious to us all. And these drugs, th- I think heroin is kind of the poster drug of our time. It, 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 it's a drug that thrives on isolation, creates more isolation. Every addict wants to be just among other addicts and just isolated and and not dealing with the real world. Hmm. And I believe the way you find a, a fight a drug based on iso- that, that thrives on on isolation is through community, and it's coming together. But not more than that. It's not a Pollyannish idea. It's more of an idea of coming together meeting each other and, and, and understanding what we all have to give to this fight. So public health and COPs, not two professions that really have much to do with one another, very sadly so. They need they really need to come come together. I believe we need to enlist um, a whole lot of groups that maybe aren't used to fighting this because this is a community problem. It's, it's a drug problem but it's also a, a community issue. It's a really about building community. So PTA needs to be there. Uh, pastors, my God, churches of all kinds need to come together in this. You know, Kiwanis, the Chamber of Commerce, they have a role in, in all this. We don't usually think of drug problems uh, being addressed by Kiwanis Club or stuff in, in a meaning, meaningful way, but I think all of these groups have something to offer. They have energy, they have talent and expertise, they have budgets perhaps all of they all and the problem is in many counties and many towns we've we across the country all these groups operate in isolation they don't know each other they don't uh, uh combine very easily it's it's a weird feeling to work together but see that's the the problem that's why this thing has spread is because so in so many communities people are afraid of of, of, kind of or or don't just naturally do it the way maybe they did uh, 20 25 years ago that's why I chose dreamland as the uh as the metaphor. I mean, uh, you destroy dreamland or in another way of saying you destroy community and you are left vulnerable to this most insidious and isolating uh, drug. And the only way to to fight it is to come together and recreate, as I say in a, in a speech I've given a couple of times, recreate dreamland on your block. Find ways of bringing people out of their houses, getting to know one another again. To me, that, that, that's why heroin is like the, the the poster drug of our time it 's because we have spent so much time uh, with it uh, 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 off the streets aw- away from each other, isolated in front of our screens, or isolated in, in our in our houses of fearing what might happen if we sent the kids outside to ride their bikes. you know I grew up riding my bike outside. My mom was from Iowa, grew up in Southern California every afternoon she would go to the to the the sidewalk at six o 'clock. And ring a farm bell that she brought with her from from Iowa, and everybody on the street, including, of course, her sons, knew that we were supposed to come home uh, for dinner. The reason she did that was because she knew that her kids might be anywhere, but one place they were not going to be was indoors in Southern California. And so, but that's changed. Yeah. That same street, no, you don't see anybody on it. You don't see anybody on the streets all across the country. And it seems to me that the community is where you find the answers. But only by coming together and knowing each other and having barbecues and having, you know, creating us a, a little bit of Dreamland on your block, does that, does that accomplish?
1: So, Sam, since you published Dreamland, we've seen the emergence of fentanyl and fentanyl laced heroin. How does that factor into the competitive landscape for uh, what you've seen through the Mexican... Well, I just
2: think it's, it's the f- latest, ext- the far extreme of what we've already created. We've got a ton of opiate addicts of one form or another, and, um, and these, these uh, drugs are, uh, uh, drugs opiates, uh, well, they're, they're narcotics that you can create without any plant involved in the process. They're just a bunch of chemicals thrown together. And, and so it's just the latest kind of permutation uh obviously always the this 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 market just totally obeys capitalist um uh, uh uh you know principles and if you can find something cheaper uh it doesn't matter how deadly uh but if you can find something cheaper that that'll that it's easier to make well you're going to sell it and that's what's happening with certainly with fentanyl it's a, a crazy scary scary thing unbelievably scary thing because so many people are using stuff that they think to be heroin um, and really, it's it's the the dealers on the street may not even know that it's not heroin; that it's actually fentanyl, and it's so deadly, uh, it's just a scary thing.
1: Yeah, how else has drug drug trafficking changed since you wrote Dreamland?
2: Well, I think only only in the fact that the the the, the market now has exploded. The guys that I wrote about from Jalisco, Nayarit, those guys were big fish in small ponds. When I was writing about them, and when and when they were, you know, when they were crossing the country, and 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 you know, in in, uh, in uh, uh, Albuquerque and and in uh, Charlotte and so on, they they were small. They, they, there was a small market for heroin back then, and they were big fish in it. Now, of course, what's happened is uh, the market for heroin has just exploded, and and they are no longer They are, the, the, the pond is now an ocean. They remain the same size fish. They keep working it, I think, but, but other much larger players, uh, large cartels are, are now involved in that. And that is the main change that I've seen.
1: Wow. So, Sam, you've lectured at opioid epidemic town halls throughout the country. Can you tell us about some programs that you've seen in different communities that, that have been particularly effective in fighting the opioid epidemic?
2: Well, I think the answer is I'm, I, I'm not sure I, I have a good answer for that. A lot of the places where I go is are, are towns that are just beginning to address this, so they don't have in place, or they, they or they they're just learning how to how to address this, and and that, that's where I've been mostly, honestly. I think a, a lot of the places are are, are going to find the same thing. You need a needle exchange, unfortunately. It's not a great idea, I don't think, honestly. But you know we've run out of of easy answers, and if you don't have needle exchange, you're gonna have an exploding number of uh, HIV and Hep C uh, cases. Uh, Narcan needs to be uh, really readily available almost anywhere because you need to keep people alive, uh, unless you just wanna go to funerals a whole lot more. You you need to keep people alive until the the moment comes when they actually can and want to seek treatment. I believe we need a whole lot more treatment beds. Um, that, That seems clear. Uh, I think jail is one place we should find those. Uh, tra- uh, reimagining jail, reinventing jail, is, is maybe one of the great, great benefits to to this epidemic. Is if you can actually find a ep- uh, benefit to it. Um,
1: yeah, you mentioned that in your book. That's yeah.
2: I think I think jail is is a place where we need to we need we run jail one way, and it's been a waste of money the whole time, which is a predatory place, boring. Not a lot of productivity going on there. Nothing productive, and it's the pl- but it's the place where addicts are really first questioning what they're doing because it's where they first get detoxed. They don't have uh, easy access anyway to to dope. Sometimes they do have access to it, and so it's a place where they first get off the dope. They're thinking rationally for the first time in months, maybe years, and it's a that very moment when we put them into into a jail where everybody is predatory there's lots of weird sexual acting out there's it's it's boring it's very stressful and boring i mean it's it's a weird combination but none of it's good and um uh, in some areas particularly in Kentucky i've seen jails are beginning to uh transform certain pods of the jail into full-time rehab clinics i think that is really um a, a one place that really ought to be uh taken uh note of or one thing that really ought to be taken note of it, it, people need to be able to to find um, uh, something uh, in jail that is not just negative because it's at that very moment uh, when they're most questioning and, and, and at that very moment we have put them into a very predatory stressful situation so the, by the time they get out of jail they run straight to the dope boys house again you know I mean it's like it's like we create the, the, the very the very conditions that will will push them into dope, further dope use and, and changing jail of course it requires a complete Transformation uh, of of how jail is done, but but it's something I think really time has come for.
1: Yeah, that's outstanding. Great great point, um, and you outline that real well in your afterword in the uh, in Dreamland. Yeah. So, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic in general, or the really the state of addressing this? I guess.
2: Well, I just, I guess I would get back, really, my favorite point is, uh, I, I'm not the guy to come into a town and say, in order to solve your opiate problem, you need to do one, two, three, four. no, I, I really don't, I, I don't know these communities well enough, I, I uh, don't know the people, um, I do have a faith, a basic faith in America, that when we come together, when we begin to leverage this, the diverse talents and interests and energies of, of people all across a, a county, say, uh, that it's there that you will find. You, 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 the, 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 the solutions are there to be found, but they need that kind of collaboration, a new approach to, to um, something like this, rather than everyone say, well, you need to do it, cops, or you need to do it, public health, or you need to do it, jailer, or coroner, why haven't you done more, that kind of thing. I, I think it's th- there needs to be a far greater participation. It's call, Heroin is calling us. It's calling us to say, you have destroyed community, and that's why I'm popular, and that's why I'm wherever I am, and and uh, you have isolated yourselves, and that's another reason why I'm where I am, and in order to defeat me, this is what you have to do. You have to become Americans again. You have to begin uh, acting accountably for your own health and, and well-being, because uh, uh, that's how we got into this too. Uh, people decided they wanted just pills instead of actually having to address what they ate and how often they exercised and whether they smoked or not that kind of thing I mean, it 's also creating um, accountability at the at the community level too to say we 've been isolated and, and each one has been working alone uh, and poorly because in all in isolation all problems are insoluble so heroin is actually a, a call to us to be Americans again in my opinion and 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 to build community back in all these areas where it 's been destroyed or not built in the first place. And I think that's if that is the result, that if a stronger community is the result of heroin, as I say in my book, we may end up ha- thanking heroin someday.
1: Sam Quinones, I want to thank you for joining us today. That's been amazing. Thank you.
2: Greg, I'm really happy to do it, and uh, thanks so much for your interest.
1: Okay. We've been joined today by Sam Quinones, author of the best-selling book, Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. My name's Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.